At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. is what Thor Heyerdahl, fellow Norwegian like myself, proved in 1950s when he built the uh, Kontiki boat and he sailed from South America catching the trade winds. He built a boat just as the Incan would have built and sailed across to Polynesia, proving that the colonization worked in the other way from South America out to the rest of Polynesia. And there, of course, you find the Maori statues of Easter Island and other very similar statues in Polynesia, which are close to being identical to those found in South America, most especially at a site called Kiwanaku. The headgear, they have the elongated ears and they got their hands across their chest just like the Easter Island Maori and other statuary found in Polynesia. When the Dutch discovered Easter Island on Easter Sunday, obviously, they saw that there were two cultures commingling. There were the very tall, fair-skinned, elongated ears. They're basically, they're more psychic. They basically have better eyesight and hearing. They cannot be cloned, and they're the most commonly abducted type of human. They go for RH negative types. 
and they have no marker to the great apes at all. So who the heck are they? Well, the highest incident of RH negative blood types is in Northern Europe, from Scandinavia down to the uh, Pyrenees Mountains where the Basque people live. And the Basque are very unique. They have their own language that is related to no other European language. Edgar Casey said that they were the survivors of Atlantis. And the RH negative blood types even go into the Atlas Mountains of Africa. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Rolling solo today. Jay might catch up with us at some point here, but with me today, it's a great honor to have him. He's an author of over 10, 12 great fantastic books. Brad Olson is here. I just bought his uh, Beyond Esoteric book and I'm loving it. So we're going to get into that today. Brad, how are you? Hey, Mark, I'm doing great. Thanks for having on show. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you about the Esoteric series of books. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you're here to do it. it. The pleasure really is all mine. But, you know, to get right into it, I got to say your books have been that kind of uh, compendium of information, a great resource to turn to and almost like a guidebook, you know, when some books are kind of dense, your book is just it, the way it's organized is just so palatable and digestible for somebody who might need that type of organization. And I'm certainly one of those people. Just the format of your book alone, I think, is is something that you don't see a lot in this realm of books. But when you do, it's, you know, something that you should have in your library for sure. So folks, please go out and, and check out Brad's books. But before uh, we get too far into the promotion, Brad, you're a traveling man. You've journeyed all over the world. I got to ask you, where was your last trip? Where'd you, where'd you come from last? Yeah, I do travel a lot. And uh, two and a half years ago, I was in South America and Antarctica. So I've been to all seven continents, traveled quite extensively overseas. Although now, ever since the uh, lockdown began, I'm pretty much resigned to traveling by my car or flying domestically. So I've been pretty much just in America and the Western states for the last two years, but still traveling all the time and taking off this weekend on another road trip. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. I got to say your book, Sacred Places, 108 Destinations, Sacred Places Around the World. I mean, out of all 108, what was probably the one that stuck with you the most right what which one had the biggest impact on your life because i mean you can't really compare some of these places they're all so unique and of themselves but which one left you with the biggest memory sure good question well i am the author of 10 books beyond esoteric just came out a couple months ago and that's number 10 our new uh, ccc publishing catalog also just came out that even this week going out to bookstores across the country right now. So I'm glad you had an opportunity to check out the Sacred Places series of books. Did those a few years ago. I'm just even flip to them now in my catalog. North America, 108 destinations. Europe, 108 destinations. And around the world that you referenced, 108 destinations, which has all the, the top ones in it. I would have to say the Great Pyramid 
comes in at number one. The whole Giza Plateau with the Sphinx and the other pyramids are just off the chart, mind-blowing. In fact, much of the information that I couldn't fit into the four-page write-up on the Great Pyramids was part of the inspiration for doing the esoteric series. And in Modern Esoteric, which you have a copy of, I get into some of the more esoteric parts of the Great Pyramid and, and Egypt placement. There's a big old map of, the, of Egypt and how it was situated of all the continental land masses in the world, right at the 33 degree parallel. So there's so many things about it just boggle the mind. I'd say a second runner-up are the temples at Angkor, and it's not just Angkor Wat, that's one of several expanding over a very wide area in northern Cambodia. And I would say uh, a third place would have to go to the megaliths of South America, Sacsayhuaman, Machu Picchu, and Cuzco has many megaliths, Oye Tambo sacred valley it's just amazing to tour around that area all all three i would have to say if uh, someone has international travel in mind or really wants to see some very fascinating enigmatic locations that those would be the top three i'd recommend all right now visiting all these places i mean with the detailed eye that you have have you noticed certain patterns that these sacred places share in common i mean 324 different places you've covered in those three books uh, out of those you know number of of sacred places do you think that there is some sort of uh, through line to kind of connect and, and maybe even like a civilization responsible for building all of them maybe not you know one country but a, a sort of unified culture uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Have you put any thoughts into who, who built these and, and, and why? Well, that's a great question. And yet, indeed, there does appear to be a progenitor race, antediluvian civilizations before Sumer and Egypt, as we're told. Even in Egypt, the earlier civilization there is called the Osiris Empire. And, the, and they were who was responsible for building the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx, much, much older than we've been told they are. And this is the same with just about all of the really old megalithic sites are all getting dated much older, including the temples at Angkor. They're finding that they were built on older temples, just like the pyramids in Central America were built upon older, smaller pyramids. And in South America, many of the megalithic sites are being dated as pre-Incan, although most uh, of the archaeologists would say they were of Incan origin. Even the Incan people said, no, 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 they were here long before us. And you can quite clearly see the constructions on top of the oldest megaliths, which are the biggest stones too, and the most precisely fitted, are less precise fitted Incan stones. And then and sometimes on those really inferior Spanish building using mortar and uh, bricks where the megalithic stones do not need any kind of mortar. 
they're so precisely fit, even though Peru and Bolivia, the heart of the Incan Empire, is right along the Ring of Fire, where there is quite a few volcanoes and earthquakes and a lot of shaking going on, especially over the millennia. Yet these megaliths mostly stand the test of time and are in much better shape than even some of the Spanish colonial buildings which crumble during the earthquakes. So to answer your question, the more we look at some of these ancient sites, the more it does appear that there was some kind of connection, that it was a, more of a unified world in this day. And what I find really fascinating too is a lot of these ancient sites also have elongated skulls that have been buried at a long ago time. And I do a lecture at the conferences on uh, mystery of the giants and all the evidence with the bones and Egypt. Well, Brad, uh, not in Nefertiti, those two kings, well, they had craniums that went out here. Yep. I, I'm six and, eight, uh, so, so I wonder. I wonder if. Uh, skull. I wonder if I'm a giant myself sometimes, <laughs> with the uh, with the with the genes that I have. Do you think that these stories of the giants procreating with human beings have any, you know? legitimacy to them? Is there truly DNA evidence that might connect some of us to these uh, progenitor, the progenitor race, as you as you use that phrase, right? Yes, I did use that phrase. And it quite well could be because there are DNA tests now being done on some of the elongated skulls. I'll just flip to a section, a chapter called Suppressed Human Origins in beyond esoteric. And here you have the star child skull. This is on page 222 and 223, as well as these elongated skulls. And you can see that's clearly not a human skull, but with a cranial capacity coming out the rear over 30 times or 30% larger than humans. So you can wrap a skull, you can put a board on it. Many native cultures used to do that. But what you cannot do, Mark, is increase the cranial capacity, increase the brain size by 30%. So these are very unique skulls and presumably tall bodies, but you cannot create a a much larger head like that. So they're very human-like, but they're not quite human. And around many of these megalithic sites, you can find the remains of, of these giants, as well as these elongated skulls, which are much larger than human skulls. Right. Now, considering some so, of the... question. No, I, yeah, I think you did. But considering yeah. the, the evidence now of the you know, younger Dryas period where we had recorded lower ocean levels, the coastlines were much larger, there was more land mass than there was water as we see today. Do you think that this race of giants sort of existed on bodies of and land masses that aren't you know emerged anymore submerged under the water what what are your thoughts on the younger dryas period well that is the, a period when before the the previous ice age when i believe the some of the oldest temples of the world such as gobekli tepe in present-day Turkey, are now being dated, if you listen to the standard archaeological 
biological dating system in the pyramids. They're both very, very old, but this was a great period of blossoming in the Middle East and Egypt, as well as other parts of Asia, and I would say South America, where this megalithic building was the fashion of the day. It's interesting now that we're still playing catch up to try to figure out how they were moving 30, 50, 70, 100 ton blocks. It cranes, the biggest cranes today would have a hard time moving the megalithic slabs at uh, Baalbach in Lebanon, for example. And so these oldest sites are also the biggest stones. <laughs> and to do an imitation of my friend David Hatcher Childress, who's on Ancient Aliens all the time, why would they do that? You have to ask yourself, why would they build in such a massive way when you could just build with smaller blocks? And he's absolutely right. Why would you go to all the trouble to build so large unless it was to impress upon others in subsequent generations that they had the ability to build this way? And that lasting impression remains to this day. Right. Now, considering, you know, all of this evidence, I mean... I believe Ed Lee Han Skill, Ed, Ed Lee Skill Han, right? He Taylor. was probably the only person in the 20th yeah. century to maybe repeat some of those techniques that we see potentially being used to move these huge stones, right? I mean, some of the more esoteric things I've read about his techniques were that he would use a puddle of water on the stone and then emanate a frequency into that stone that would allegedly vibrate that stone and alleviate the weight <laughs> that would have been holding it you know from him this frail eastern european man from placing these you know huge pieces of coral in, in the intricate formations that he did have you looked into coral castle at all brad yeah yeah i feature it in my sacred places north america book and i went there last year and just for your listeners to know the location, it's in Homestead, Florida, just about 20 miles east of Miami Beach. And it, it, as you said, it was built by a very diminutive man from Latvia named Edley Scalin. And he single-handedly moved 30-ton megalithic blocks in the middle of the night, all alone. He wouldn't ask for anybody's help. Didn't want anybody to watch him. And you're right. The, the Coral Castle is the only modern megalithic construction in the last 200 years. And the fact that it was built single-handedly by this little 99-pound, uh, five-foot-tall Latvian immigrant, whose only clue was that he knew the secrets of how they built the Great Pyramids in Egypt. But he used all sorts of techniques, many of which are lost. And course here's me on the tour at coral castle last year questioning how this guy could be moving these megalithic stones and basically the tour guides having no real cognizant answer about how a man single-handedly moving one of the one of them is 33 tons it's a megalith 22 feet tall and he was also very fascinated with the movement of the sun and the stars and there's a very accurate sundial at the Coral Castle, as well as other uh, alignments that he used with the megalithic stones and 
carvings of planets as well on the wall surrounding. It's a really fascinating spot. Not in America, I would have to say that would be in my top five recommended locations to go and visit for people. Wow. And I'm I'm traveling through the Ohio River Valley quite often. Have you been to the the oh, nice. snake mound, the serpent mounds here and and I forget the indigenous name of it, but maybe you remember. I've always known it as Serpent Mound, but uh, that's really cool. You're going to get to go there. And there are astronomical alignments with the pattern the serpent makes that can determine equinoxes and solstice dates as well. In my book, Sacred Places North America, I have a chart of all those alignments, a full page map for people to go there and test it themselves. I mean, this is what I love to do too, is do a little archaeoastronomy myself, sleeping out at the Bighorn Medicine Wheel in Wyoming on the summer solstice and seeing the sunrise come up right through the Carnes and going to these places anytime I can, uh, especially if they have some kind of alignment associated with them. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, one of the things that I really uh, enjoyed exploring is the Susquehanna River Valley. And my question is, A, have you heard of the Susquehanna River Valley and its kind of age and, and, and kind of, uh, I guess, potency here in North America? And B, have you noticed that some of these megalithic sites are placed along certain bodies of water or other types of land masses or geographical features? Is there a pattern in that sense with the... There is a pattern. And oftentimes when these older sites have alignments that are built into the architecture of the uh, monument, these are not, that's not a coincidence. When other sites line up on the solstice, when you have windows such as the prehistoric stone chambers in New England that allow the light from the solstice or equinox to come shining through only on those days right around the equinox or solstice, those are not coincidences. And sometimes, for example, the Upton Stone Chamber in Massachusetts that too has an alignment right through the center chamber, but also across the valley, there's an old carn, an old rock pile that perhaps had a, was fitted together in antiquity. It's now been reduced to a pile of rubble, but that too could have had markers sticking up, just like at America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire. That also has megalithic markers to denote the time of year and the seasons, hence the name Stonehenge. So America is really filled with a lot of mysteries, a lot more so than people have given it credit for. And I'll tell you, when I was working on, on the book, Sacred Place in North America, I was driving cross country half a dozen times, south to east to west. And I'd roll into town sometime and be like, hey, did you know about that? And Blythe, California. They have these geoglyphs, much like the Nazca lines. We have geoglyphs right along the Colorado River Valley. And I'd pull into the diner, but like, have you ever been up to those geoglyphs? It's pretty amazing. And the waitress would be like, no, I've lived here my whole life. I've never gone to see it. I've seen the sign on the side of the road, but I just never took the time to go and look at it. I'm like, 
can't believe it. Sometimes right there in their backyard and they either don't know about it, don't care about it, or just never found the time to go check it out. Wow. But that's why these are esoteric sites in a way is because they are known to a select few, just like a lot of the information that I collect in these books is uh, the subjects that I find most fascinating and near and dear to my heart uh, because it presents the great mysteries of the world, really. So right. to, to have the opportunity to research and put together these books has been a, a great honor. I, I do consider it. Well, it's well-received. I'm definitely a fan of your hard work. I, I, Jay and I have been to America's Stonehenge, and I, I'm curious to, you said that was oh. in Massachusetts, the one of those rock formations. I got to go and check that uh, out. In Stone but, Chamber, yeah. Right. And oh, Connecticut do. itself is full of little anomalies and you know, the, the name Connecticut means long river. The river is very long. But, you know, what I was getting at with the Susquehanna River is it, it's almost like they looked at the planners of America, looked at the map and saw this river, saw its potential. And what do you see at the at the the end of it? You see Washington, D.C., right? Right there on the Potomac. And then you go up a little bit and you find that that's where the first computer was built on the banks of the Susquehanna River. And then even further, you have Cooperstown, you have Herkimer Diamonds. And this isn't my work. This is uh, Michael Wan, who I've had on the show before. But I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on this kind of synchronicity of events that seems to be the, the theme in, in a lot of these conspiracies. Like once you looked into it initially, did you notice that things kind of snowballed and your intuition kind of was buzzing at certain things rather than others? Yeah, I love those kind of synchronicities. I didn't quite uh, do the research of Saxohama River as, as your previous guest did. I find it fascinating though, and uh, very interesting that all these things happen and occur. And yeah, probably the uh, Finding Fathers have uh, really noticed that as well, but that other things like invention of baseball would take place later on and things like that. I've been more interested in the waterways of, of ancient America the Mississippi and, and you said you're near the Ohio River Valley and Serpent Mounds not too far away from that. And, and you have very old mound building cultures in these locations, most especially in Ohio. Another great location, if you have time to check it out, is Newark, Ohio. And there's a golf course that covers a lot of this very old earthenwork location that also has astro astronomy associations in Newark, but a lot of different mound sites of varying different kinds. I grew up in uh, northwestern Chicago suburbs, and we would go to uh, southern Wisconsin all the time on vacation. And one of our favorite places, and I know it well from the time I was a little kid, it was called Devil's Lake. And Devil's Lake has these, they have uh, different effigy mounds, which is what uh, the serpent mound is considered an effigy mound, which is in the shape of a serpent. Or in the case of Devil's Lake, there's a bird man with uh, wings for arms stretched across. And 
it uh, sorry about that right oh jeez is that the so devil's lake has these great mound sites that is mis uh, called devil because that's what the um, settlers would call many of the sacred places of the native americans so anytime you see uh devil's tower for example out in um wyoming that was a sacred mountain of course and there it is right there on the cover of sacred place north america wow yeah many many sites across north america with the name devil in it yeah yep even here in Connecticut, we have a place called the Devil's Den, which Jay and I have been to. And it's just a, a small haunt, you know, in the woods, it's kind of around a river bank. And there is a sort of ominous feeling. And I'd hate to think it's just placebo effect of being like, oh, we're in the Devil's Den. But I remember, A, finding a spectacular piece of quartz crystal in the river bank when I was there. And B, wow. having a very kind of sense of peace there in particular so yeah that is very alleviating to know the the little backstory behind there because that is a theme you see especially in new england like all these places called devil this devil that and it makes sense that the settlers would have applied their superstition on uh, native americans i mean personally a native american culture has been a huge and uh, uh reason to to get into all this stuff you know i think maybe you probably have the same reverence say you've meditated at the medicine wheel and and saint cloud is it Uh, that was the bighorn medicine wheel also in wyoming on the slopes of medicine mountain well you guys are in connecticut have you ever been up to uh great in connecticut the gungiwamp site right along the river thames so <laughs> i should call it it's an incredible megalithic site right there yeah maybe maybe i don't want to have this on the record but jay and i did sneak into the actually i don't know if jay was <laughs> with me it might have been another friend but i don't know uh, we did uh, i did sneak into the forest of gungi Wamp and very respectfully walked around and looked at it and you know because you need to you know get the permission from the town and that's just not my style brad i'm sorry but you know so i i went and i snooped it out myself and it was really a spectacular thing to see i mean they have a a whole cover story like you know white settlers built it but it's very obvious that a culture who had a very deep knowledge of astronomy and astrology built this place right have you been there yourself and and gotten there yeah yeah it it took me a while to find it too and it is not very well indicated, but, and yeah, like you said, it's on private property. I think it was a Boy Scout camp at one time, but some of the chambers there, which have megalithic capstones over the top, also have some of these archaeoastronomical alignments where the light comes right through some of the small windows in the chambers. And that cannot be a coincidence. So whatever they want to write it off as being uh, root cellars or Indian sweat lodges, well, they obviously had a very deep concern with carrying these solar moments on the equinox and the uh, solstice. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can tell that area in particular, if you walk around the forest with a certain eye, you'll notice that if you were hunting game, there's a channel 
and a cliff. So this would have been a perfect place for people to live, this area where Gungiwamp is. It's rich shellfish in the area, Connecticut on Long Island Sound. There's so much aquatic life. And then on top of that, you have all of the deer and, and different, you know, flora or fauna that are, are moving around in that area. And right next to Gungiwamp is this beautiful kind of like, I'm not a hunter, but I can tell if I was, that would be a great place to kind of funnel animals to. So it's clear that this place was advantageous for people to live in. And, and I, I'm kind of led to believe, and I'm really curious to know what your thoughts are on this, because up to the past four years ago, I don't know if this subject was very well known, but what are your thoughts on the kind of burgeoning Tartaria theory and how some people are kind of connecting some of these specific sites like star forts or certain neoclassical buildings that might have megalithic features into this kind of lost civilization theory that maybe even was rewritten from history much sooner or more recently than we thought. What do you, have you looked into Tartaria at all, Brad? I have indeed. And I have a really good friend who speaks at conferences and he does a presentation on it. And everything is getting dated older and older and older mark even in north america whatever you want to call it i mean they go by different names to different groups that study them but in the area where you're at now or very close in ohio is fort ancient culture and in fort ancient it's such a distinct different culture than the mound builders of the various type the hopewell the Adena and the mound builders themselves out in the Mississippi River Valley. But Fort Ancient, not only were they fortified and they would take hilltops in Ohio and build walls around them, but there are furnaces where they were using the art and technique of smeltering different ore and combining them to make a stronger ore. Well, if you ask any archaeologists on North American history, they'll tell you that the native, no Native American culture had this scientific ability of using uh, furnaces to create a stronger ore. Well, up in the uh, northern peninsula of Michigan, around Lake Superior, where the copper culture was located, are also hundreds of pit mines where the richest vein of copper is located in the world. They're still mining it to this day, but there are many places in the Upper Peninsula and in Canada and Isle Royale where these ancient copper mines were located. And you could ask uh, anyone and they'll tell you that hundreds of tons of copper went out and nobody knows where. Well, copper is a very soft metal. So if we were in a sword fight, you had copper and I had uh, brass or bronze, which is combining tin and copper, a much stronger metal. You could be a a real big guy, (laughs) real strong, but if you had a copper tool, you'd lose to the guy with the bronze because he would break your sword and be able to come at you. So it's a huge technological leap, really, to know the art of smeltering. And the fact that they found these furnaces in Ohio in the Fort Ancient culture would suggest, once again, lost technology, 
and a much older civilization, however you want to call it, Tatarian or the Ford ancient culture. What also I find very interesting, and I grew up in uh, Chicago suburbs, northwest suburbs, and one of the earliest relics that was located in Chicago, right along the riverbanks of the Chicago River. And it's such an amazing find. I put it on the cover of Sacred Place of North America. This is the Wabanzi Stone. That was actually on an episode of America Unearthed with Scott Walter. And we were, the show was about this stone and how Chicago was founded at the location it was because it was the quickest and easiest way to go into the Mississippi River Valley. And where I grew up as a kid, we used to play in the Des Plaines River, just a few miles from where I grew up. The southern branch of the, of the Des Plaines River comes right up to a place called Mud Lake. And the southern branch of the Chicago River, not even a mile apart. And then there's Mud Lake in the middle. And that's where we filmed the segment on America on Earth. And I was telling Scott Walter that a heavily laden ship with copper that could have come down through the Great Lakes and had relative safety in the Great Lakes being well out of range of bow and arrow attack or anything along the shore, which is not the case once you're in the river system. Then you're very vulnerable and then you can be attacked quite easily. So when they got to the entrance of the Chicago River, where the whole city grew up around, was the old Fort Dearborn. And in Fort Dearborn, the first fort on the banks of the Chicago River, they had the Wabonzi Stone. It's been there since the city was formed. And it's a very ancient stone. So when I was doing my research in uh, Sacred Place, looking into the origins of this, and I went into the uh, Chicago Historical Society Library, where the Wabanzi stone used to be on exhibit. They don't have it anymore. You have to get permission to go and see it like Scott Walter did. But when I was working on this book in 15 years ago, it was still on display. And that's why I took the picture on the cover of the book and went into their library one day. And I found as much as I could find about this and going back to newspapers in the 19, the debate was still very open as to what the origin of this might be. And the prevailing literature, even in the 19th century, was that this was Phoenician in design and that this was a Tophet stone, T-O-P-H-E-T, which means it was a sacrificial stone. One thing that's very unique about the Wabanzi stone is that it has a cavity right there on the top of the head. It's about the size of a large bath bowl that you could put an infant in. And because the Phoenicians were known to do infant sacrifice, that this relic was marginalized and, and they didn't want to talk about it. In fact, when I saw it in the museum, it had putty stuck up in the, the nasal passages in the mouth and, and they had a pipe through it like uh, they couldn't clear out somebody's bad plumbing job. They just didn't want people to think that this was used for child sacrifice. And this is what I told Scott, you got to do your forensic archaeology on this and see if you can get a, a blood sample. I, I don't think they let him do that. 
but his conclusion was the same as myself and others that this was uh, a relic that was very, very old, perhaps thousands of years old. And it was a result of the Phoenicians who were the master traders of the Mediterranean 3,000, 4,000 years ago. They protected their trade routes very uh, well, but they needed the copper as the main alloy for creating bronze. And that's how the Bronze Age started in the time of Homer. It, now, they were using bronze fighting implements. So it was the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and then later they discovered iron, the Iron Age even stronger than bronze. Now, of course, we're in the technological age, a different one altogether. Maybe uh, silicon or cyber is, is the main element being used. But so the, the Phoenicians would come up through the St. Lawrence Seaway they would cross over with an empty boat from Lake Ontario to Lake Huron up the Niagara Escarpment. And there is a, about a 300-mile cliff that goes all the way through southern Ontario to Niagara Falls and then continues on through New York State. So they would pull an empty boat up the Niagara Escarpment. They would go and get their copper in Lake Superior, but then the boat would be very heavily laden. And then they could navigate to the mouth of the Chicago River, where they would sacrifice a child, a baby, for safe passage. And then they would carry on through the river systems and then go out through the Mississippi. And then on the east coast of Florida, we presented in the episode, there's another one, just like the Wabanzi Stone in Florida. So now, they would do one more child sacrifice before they cross the ocean, catching the trade winds and going across the Atlantic, as Columbus discovered many uh, thousands of years later. And it would now, be a multi-year trip. But if you did it, Mark, let's say you and I went along on this trip and we successfully made it back to Phoenicia with a full cargo of copper, we'd be millionaires in terms of the monetary system of the day. So there was certainly the financial motive, so to speak, <laughs> from time immemorial to go on these risky journeys and come back with a cargo that would make you uh, wealthy for the rest of your life, if they fairly distributed it, that's, that's to say. But uh, copper was very much worth its weight close to being as valuable as gold in times of antiquity when they needed it to combine with the tin, which did come from the British Isles. They found a lot of ancient pit mines there. That's of course not as far to go, but combining the two with furnaces to smelt this, there you have a high technology right there, proof of it. Brad, I mean, you just connected all the dots and I'm over here, you know, kind of shaking in my boots because the first question I had for you while you said that was about Ireland, because there are stories of dark skinned people being the original inhabitants of Ireland. And they were also known to be a trading race, almost described like pirates and also very tall. And then also when you look into maybe later, uh, more recently, you hear tales of, of settlers, early Spanish settlers arriving in Florida to find these giant 
pale skinned cannibal like people. So, you know, you kind of just connected all the dots there because it seems like they'd have to go past Ireland to get up to, you know, past Nova Scotia and down into the Great Lakes and then on their way out back up towards the Mediterranean, they need to pass by Florida. So it would be, you know, make sense to me that there would be stragglers and people who are like, all right, I'm going to hang around in Florida. And I mean, I don't know if you've been spent much time in Florida, Brad, but there's a lot of deadly things in Florida. I wouldn't be surprised if they got stranded and became cannibals, <laughs> you know, monkey see monkey do. You're all around alligators and deadly snakes. And, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, my dad used to have a sailboat and we sailed in the British Virgin Islands and we sailed in Great Lakes too, across Lake Michigan many times. And, and I took a sailboat down to Antarctica two and a half years ago. So I just love navigating, looking at maps, figuring out routes, and also following ancient paths of discovery. Oftentimes the archeologists and the historians will say, well, well, there's these big oceans in between the continents, they would have been a barrier. Well, another school of thought called cultural diffusionism says they weren't barriers at all. They were highways. They facilitated travel and traffic to these far-flung destinations. And a good example is what Thor Heyerdahl, fellow Norwegian like myself, proved in 1950s when he built the uh, Contiki boat and he sailed from South America, catching the trade winds. He built a boat just as the Incan would have built and sailed across to Polynesia, proving that the colonization worked in the other way from South America out to the rest of Polynesia. And there, of course, you find the Maori statues of Easter Island and other very similar statues in Polynesia, which are close to being identical to those found in South America, most especially at a site called Kiwanaku. The headgear, they have the elongated ears and they got their hands across their chest, just like the Easter Island Maori and other statuary found in Polynesia. When the Dutch discovered Easter Island on Easter Sunday, obviously, they saw that there were two cultures commingling. There were the very tall, fair-skinned, elongated ears. They had big earrings that they wore. And then there was a smaller Polynesian, more of a slave class to the uh, lesser in number they called them long ears. And the Dutch made a fatal mistake and they left behind some gunpowder and some guns. And then by the time Captain Cook rediscovered Easter Island several decades later, all the long ears got wiped out. That the smaller and larger in number Polynesians were able to acquire those weapons and they killed all of the tall, fair-skinned, with beards, long-eared people. And they also toppled over all the Maori statues. And that was kind of the end of the era. And then it was an ecological catastrophe at that point. They had overused the resources of that small island. And when Captain Cook got there, he noticed that it was just a, a total mess. It had been really destroyed, once again, by the conquering people. And I, I do have the 
whole story of Easter Island in my sacred places. Wow. Earliest diaries from the Dutch and from Captain Cook telling the story of the long-eared people and how they could have been the Viracocha, who were known in South America. In fact, one of the reasons that Pizarro was able to conquer the Inca Empire so easily is they thought he was the returning god. Fair skin, with a beard, riding on a horse they had never seen before. It, 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 it was one of the most lopsided battles in world history that Pizarro and a small group of conquistadors defeated an army of 10,000 men because they caught him by surprise. And then they went right and captured the king, Althawapa, and they demanded gold ransom, which they got, and they still killed the guy. So they were pretty ruthless, and they took down one of the mightiest empires now, the ancient world has ever known, as well as what they did in Central America as well. And yeah. there, again, Cortez and other conquistadors were thought to be the, the gods of the Central American people. Well, have you heard? Um, I mean, this is something I've, I, I learned really early on, you know, in New Haven, I was a community college student, right? <laughs> on the doorstep of Skull and Bones. And I ran across this character who was uh, a Native American from Southwest United States. And he was there to protest the fact that Geronimo's skull and cross you know, femur bones were in the tomb on High Street in New Haven. So naturally that just like blew my mind because I had been reading A Secret Establishment by Chris Milligan or by Anthony Sutton, published by Chris Milligan. And, you know, we hit it off. But one of the things he told me in the many, you know, weeks I knew him and talked to him about this stuff was that in those days, the conquistadors had a book that described this whole culture for them ahead of time. So they were able to find the right day and the right time and know exactly where and when to strike and to kind of, like you said, have this victory in one of the most lopsided battles in, in the history of the world. And I thought, you know, it was really interesting the way he said it because it was a conspiracy theory. You know, he, he being an indigenous person, you know, that was tribal information, right? That was something his father, whose father, his father told him. So I took that as more than just a secondary source information. And, and I'd like to know if you've heard anything that would maybe legitimize that kind of conspiracy. I was told many years ago that they had this book. Right. Well, they would use any advantage they could possibly gain over the people that they were conquering because, of course, they were greatly outnumbered. And a very similar story of Cortez coming into Mexico City and confronting the Aztec, who had an incredible city on the lake with the waterways and central pyramids, which have now been excavated. And he, too, was just there for conquest and gold. And Montezuma was the Aztec ruler of the time, and he met a very similar fate to Althawapa of the Incans. And they didn't care. If they could capture the leader, they would use ransom and extort as much as they could possibly get. 
before the natives got wise to their plan and then up uprising and a revolt which happened in almost all cases and but by that time they would put them down and they had already extracted the gold and back to uh, Europe it went which created the great rise in the European empire. A very influential book that I read was Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, which really showed how the Europeans had such an advantage over the indigenous people that they were conquering around the world. Because you got to think, how did these tiny little countries like Holland have all these far-flung colonial empire in Spanish, which so many millions of people speak Spanish today in the Americas because of their conquest, because they had guns, uh, they spread the germs, which we knew in North America was literally genocide to native tribes, which had no natural resistance to smallpox, for example, and, and other diseases, which they willingly spread to just wipe these people out, get them out of the way. So we could have the land and take the resources. Manifest Destiny was the document that the uh, settlers went by when they conquered North America. And before that, they used the popple bull and they used whatever they could to capture the land. And oftentimes it would be to use one of the priests. And this was an example that they did with Althawapa in, in South America. So they, they got close to him and the army let them get close enough where a priest went up to the king with a Bible and said, we are going to baptize you and we're going to Christianize this land. And Althawapa, he slapped the book down. And that was the moment that Pizarro gave the order to attack with the horses and the guns. And they went right to him to capture him and then secure the perimeter. And then it was a, a, a bad historical story after that. It was just the wanton destruction of the entire Incan culture. When I was there two and a half years ago with uh, Brian Forster and Sam Harriman, we were doing a tour of South America. There was a point when Brian Forster, who's married to a Peruvian woman, was telling us how ruthless their uh, conquest was. And at one point he broke down in tears crying because he felt so strongly about how unjust the conquest was and how, how great of a civilization the Inca were, that they had no locks on their doors. They had no possessions of their own. It was all collectivism. And within a generation, the conquistadors were able to just totally destroy this civilization. But, but the, the hardest part for Brian was that even the conquistadors who had amassed all this wealth and sent it back to Spain, and they themselves had become extraordinarily wealth conquest and dividing up the, the territories that they were given. They eventually started to cannibalize themselves and kill each other, the conquistadors themselves. And uh, there was one who was left, just one. Even Pizarro was killed by his own men eventually. And there was one conquistador a few decades later, and he looked at what they had done to this Incan empire. 
And he himself started to cry and just said, what have we done to these people? Just, just subjected them to such horror, took away their history, their culture, all their treasure. Look what we have done. And, and then all for what? For the greed of these conquistadors who then eventually just killed him, each other off because they were so greedy. So it's now, like, when, when do you, can you even get enough? Yeah. Now, Brad, I mean, yeah. can we just, I mean, that's it, ultimately tragic and it's something I've been thinking about and talking about and, and making people aware of when I have the opportunity because I do feel so deeply for the indigenous cultures and the losses they've suffered. But I mean, the Spanish empire, the Spanish kingdom, I mean, that's royalty. That's a royal blood. That's royal blood, right? I mean, the United Kingdom, the Dutch, right? These people, they have ties to the Roman empire and potentially even further back. I mean, to these Nephilim Anunnaki people, as some might say, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that these royal families, you know, have true evil intentions? And that's why these things were, you know, done to the Native American people and the indigenous people of Central and South America, because they were so, you know, connected to the soul of the land and so connected to being human that it just wasn't, you know, a part of their New World Order control scheme, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on on the intentions of of the Spanish Empire and, and other empires? And you were asking about the royal families and the lineage. And they do think of themselves as different than us. Uh, Their saying was the divine right to rule. That they, some kind of divine permission from God to be the ruler over not only these people in their empire, but their subjects, them special. They're still people too. Well, there is actually something special. And this would then take us into more of the esoteric subject matter, and that is the RH negative blood type. Are you familiar with that? That uh, there is within the human body, 15% of us have RH negative blood. Well, what does that mean? RH stands for rhesus monkey. And so 85% of all humans have the tracer genes back to the great apes, back to the apes. But 15%, including my own family, are RH negative. That means there are no tracer to primitive species. So Darwin's theory of evolution is not quite uh, cohesive when you consider the RH negative blood type. And I bring this up because the royal families are all RH negative blood. You see, there is a difference and they see themselves as different. And you just don't marry into an RH a negative bloodline family, if you're, especially if you're positive, they consider those inferior blood types. Why do you think we have the blue bloods or the uh, purebreds in these royal family lineages? They take this very seriously. Whether we believe it or see it or care or not doesn't matter because they do. And there's a lot of weird things about RH negative blood type people. And I can tell you because it is in my family, as I said, that they sometimes might have an extra vertebrae or even on rare occasion, an extra rib. So once again, when we were talking about the giants, they're very human-like, but they're not quite human. And 
or as we know it. And you see, there are really two kinds of humans who can intermix. So for example, a horse and a donkey can mate and have a mule, which is a different species. The mule is sterile and that's where it ends, but there are others that can intermix. So for example, a couple of years ago, Nature Magazine came out and said, well, there's actually two kinds of African giraffe. To the naked eye, to any one of us, if we went to a zoo, it's so subtle, you'd never know the difference. But apparently there are. And so that is the same kind of subtlety in the human genome with this RH negative blood type. And the weirdest thing of all, and this happened in my own family, my grandmother, who was RH negative, married an RH positive man. My dad was born, he was born RH negative, no problem. But the, the second to be born, my uncle Douglas, I five years old, because he had RH positive blood, which mixed with my grandmother's RH negative blood and killed him. So this happened to animal species on the planet, except humans, where you could have incompatible blood types that would kill their own offspring. And I know it happened in my family. Now they have since come forth with uh, different kind of drugs that, that it's not a danger anymore. But even Anne, who was also ha had a contamination from my grandmother, they had to save her life by changing her blood. She completely drained all her RH positive blood. They put RH negative blood in her, which she had to be for the remainder of her life. And she was always quite sickly and, and she has since passed away. So it's really bizarre, all the things that are attributed to RH negative blood type. They're basically, they're more psychic. They basically have better eyesight and hearing. They cannot be cloned. And they're the most commonly abducted type of human. They go for RH negative types. And they have no marker to the great apes at all. So who the heck are they? Well, the highest incident of RH negative blood types is in Northern Europe, from Scandinavia down to the uh, Pyrenees Mountains where the Basque people live. And the Basque are very unique. They have their own language that is related to no other European language. Edgar Cayce said that they were the survivors of Atlantis. And the RH negative blood types even go into the Atlas Mountains of Africa, where the Berber people live, and they have fair skin, multicolored eyes, and multicolored hair, which is also common with RH negative blood types. And so this could be the uh, lineage of the antediluvian civilization that we know of as Atlantis. And they were of a different type of humans. And the proof is in the RH negative blood type. So I think that's what the uh, royal families felt that they were different from all the rest because they really were. But you see, you could still mate with them and, and, and occasionally have offspring, as my family proved. But as far as the royals go, they do not look kindly upon the intermixing of their blood, which they consider the royal bloodline. Wow.
So without offending, I mean, what makes them different from you? I mean, what, what do you think is different about your family that's led you down this clearly uh, a virtuous path towards enlightening others? You've traveled all over the world. You've shared so much you know, sacred knowledge with people who might not have had the opportunity to go visit these places. I mean, what makes uh, you different from them in, in your humble opinion? Well, I wasn't born into a royal family. So I don't, my mother was RH positive and actually I'm RH positive as well, but I could very easily have children who are RH negative. It's kind of like the color of your eyes or your hair color can pass intergenerationally. It, it does stick around and that's why all the inner mating with RH negative people has not diluted the blood type to extinction. That's why it's still around. But families that are 100% RH negative, well, they know that they're different. And uh, I talked to my uh, aunt and my cousin. We, we've always known we're a little bit different. So you kind of get that feeling when you are. But of course, the royal families, you know, they take that to the next level with their feeling that they can hold other people in abject uh, servitude to them. That's taking it too far, in my opinion. But I could see where they're coming from because it, it, you do know it. If you're in that kind of family, you know it and you know you're different. So they just take it to that level, uh, putting God into it as well, the divine right to rule and by such wow. considering superior to all the rest. But of course, I don't, nor does my family. We just know we're a little bit weird and different. And, you know, maybe maybe that's led to, to my doing uh, these series of books and and other things i just feel compelled to help educate other people in, into some of these yeah absolutely i mean i and i'm grateful for it you know i hope that didn't come off as uh, trying to question you because I, I i knew where your answer was going but i myself maybe should get a blood test because I'm, I'm like i said i'm six eight i have a strangely red beard and, and northern european genetics so I don't know. And French too at that. So who knows? I mean, maybe I'll go and get uh, tested. Probably not in the next few years. I'm kind of trying to avoid needles if you catch my drift, Brad. But I, I, I'm sure you know all about that and and what, you know, they're trying to propagate against us that this medical malpractice industry that's gone and kind of been born out of the industrial revolution. But I mean, what are your thoughts on maybe since we're kind of coming to the close on here, obviously people are well aware of the situation going on, COVID and all that. And it really, in my opinion, I think more people than ever have been kind of pushed into thinking the way you and I think in this kind of, you know, alternative way of interpreting what most people would consider true, right? So and in fact, finding a, a more true truth. So what, what would be some solutions you, you have to leave our audience with on how to overcome like this kind of new world order uh, front that we're dealing with right now? Yeah, good question. I've always said that knowledge is power. Evolution is consciousness. We can't go out and fight them eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They're way better armed way better supported. And if we're going to make a, a great change in the world, that change comes from within. So I think people should 
really try to be informed. At, at this period of time, you couldn't say it's more important than now. You have to sit getting caught up into what's going on in the world. And the reason my new book has the subtitle Escaping Prison Planet is to give, give people some insight into how they can understand the situation that we're in and hopefully have that knowledge to make good decisions in their life. Because at this point, if you make bad decisions, you may be cutting yourself short in years. It, it, unfortunately, I think it's gotten to that point, Mark. And we really have to be well aware of the dangers that are now confronted us in just about every aspect of our life. And I'm not just talking about getting that Franken jab. I'm talking about getting fluoride out of your toothpaste and water. I'm talking about avoiding GMO foods. I'm talking about mitigating the dangers of what's being uh, rained down on us with chemtrails and uh, have all characters, some chemi planes. And so it's, it's knowing what you're up against. Like uh, Sun Tzu, the art of war says, know your enemy. Uh, if you don't know what you're up against, you're going to get slaughtered. So just know that there is a war going on for your mind, your body, and your soul. And if you don't know it, you're never going to know it. And you're just going to go through life completely oblivious to it. But I'm saying right now is a time when you're going to be affected by it. And those who are wise enough to step out of the matrix as best as they can and nonconform will be the ones who survive. I'm quite convinced that it has been across the Rubicon moment that we have just passed. And it is now going to be an us and them scenario. And I'll tell you for one, I will never date a uh, vaccinated woman ever again. It's going to be uh, Said a, the a exact problem same thing. in the future. And <laughs> that's where we're at, guys. <laughs> oh, hey, Jay. <laughs> I yeah, literally that's... said the exact same thing the other day. I cannot date anybody that has a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I agree with that completely, Jay. I think, you know, to your point, Brad, where better to start than the esoteric series? I mean, you have modern esoteric, future esoteric, and beyond esoteric, and your books really lay it out in such a great way. I've been benefited from it so much. I've got a positive people. question. Jay, fire away. I love it. Go what's a what's a, a cool sacred mountainous place me and mark should visit in north america specifically yeah we need to take a cool road trip this summer brad do you have any tips recommendations mountainous how far do you want to travel <laughs> oh we've been far brad <laughs> we, we've never been further than colorado heading west so. right yeah well that's where it starts and i'm out here in california and we got mountains all over the place oh let's see i will tell you i'm uh, i'm speaking at the mount shasta summer conference mountain as you can get and if you and your listeners want to come out use the promo code brad b-r-a-d get a discount 
and I'm doing several presentations and I think I moderate a panel and speak on a panel. So great group of people that are coming out for that. I'd love to meet you guys uh, face face. And you know what, Mark, I'm about as tall as you are. So uh, we can give each other <laughs> a man hug and be uh, eye to eye. I had a feeling, Brad, you know, I think, you know, the RH negative family trait, the tall, you know, there's something to it, man. There's something to it. That's good to hear. But I got to ask you one last question. I'm sure Sam, Tripoli, XG, and Johnny asked you this. I haven't listened yet, but you've been to Antarctica. I mean, the opportunity to talk to someone who's been to Antarctica is very rare. So I got to ask you, what does it look like down there real quick? And what are all these flat earthers talking about? (laughs) Is there an ice wall? I mean, come on, let's get this straight. You've been there. Right. And you're alluding to the flat earth. There is no ice wall. It's a frozen continent, to be sure. I got to within one degree north of the Antarctic Circle. And the farther you go south, the colder it gets. And the same goes with the the North Pole. And I've been up to Trondheim, Norway, which is pretty well up there, too. And it gets colder on the top. And I've been all the way around the world on the equatorial region. And I went one direction and ended up back at home. So most certainly a spherical planet that we reside on. But Antarctica is a frozen continent, Mark. It's, it's like no other landmass on this planet. It's quite alien, to use the word, because there's just so little human influence down there. Right. Right now, now after all the uh, summer bases have cleared out, there's only a thousand people on the entire Antarctic continent. And it's the fifth largest continent in the world. It's about the size of two continental U.S.'s put together, two Australias. It's that big. It's massive. And there's no one there because it's 99% covered in ice and snow and it's a frozen land. So it's, it's very, very unique because so few humans ever go down there. The animals really have no fear of people at all. So we had a whale swim under our boat, which I caught on film. And by the way, I'm going to give my uh, Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica lecture at the Mount Shasta Summer Conference. That's a good 90-minute talk and dispel a lot of misconceptions, but, but also talking about what could be under the ice. And believe me, there are a lot of mysteries down there. So I uh, invite you guys to come out and maybe we'll go climb Mount Shasta and tap into the underground city tellers which is rumored brad i think it's a date man i'm excited we're gonna have to make that happen use the promo code brad right and 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 check out that conference folks if you're if you're in the area especially but wow yeah mount shots is definitely on my list of places to go so awesome brad this has been so fantastic you know i mean is there anything else you want to leave folks with what's the website they can go to to find your books yeah to to go to my books go to to dccpublishing.com and if you order a book through that website it goes to my office and i can sign copies on the way out if you want to know more about me and some of the other projects i'm working on bradolson.com that's b-r-a-d-o-l-s-e-n dot com and find me uh, on facebook and twitter too ccc publishing and i have a youtube channel called uh, 
esoteric series ccc publishing and uh catch it catch me at one of my conferences i have uh i'm doing a lot of online others uh are only online this year but there are a couple live ones the mount shasta one will be a live event and then in november the 5d events in laughlin nevada will be another live event i'll be speaking at so uh, i love to, to to meet people who have read my books or heard my interviews i'm a people person so you'll find me at my uh, book table most of the time if i'm not doing uh, something with the conference and when hear your story too so look forward to meeting you guys if you can make it out it'd be great wow Thank you so much, Brad. And uh, thanks for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. for feeling so lonely. Follow us on Patreon.com slash MFTIC. That's Patreon.com slash MFTIC. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.